Would you open your Bibles this morning to Matthew 6, the Gospel of Matthew chapter 6. We're actually coming to the end of a a study that we began uh, back in the new year, beginning of January, in the Lord's Prayer, where the Lord is teaching us to pray. And he said to his disciples, pray in this way, and this is a pattern. And we began by looking at how the, the pattern of this prayer praises God for who he is and, and seeks to petition him that his name would be famous in all the earth. That's what it means to hallow the name of the Lord. And then we began to look at how some of the particular petitions, like verse 11, give us this day our daily bread, we're asking God to provide for us. And then it moves into prayers for forgiveness. We need the pardon of our God. And then finally here in verse 13, the prayer that we would be protected. And as we'll study here in a moment, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. So if you found this portion of the scripture, uh, follow along as I read verses 9 through 13. The Lord Jesus said to his disciples, pray then like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Let's pray together. Will you bow with me, please? Our God and Father, how thankful we are again for your word It is not only wisdom from on high, it is a living word. There is life in this word for us on this day. And we pray, Spirit of God, that as you have been appointed to instruct us to illuminate our minds, that we might understand it, uh, to stir our hearts, that we might believe it, and to activate our wills, that we might obey it. Come, Holy Spirit. There are hundreds of needs represented in this room today. And there is not one need we have carried into this room of heart or soul or spirit that is not met perfectly in the Lord Jesus. Would you reveal our Savior to us? We have just sung again another prayer that we're turning our eyes to you. Oh Lord Jesus, we're lifting our hearts to you. Praying that you would Reveal yourself to us today that we might be changed. Give strength to those who are weak. Give comfort to those who are discouraged and despairing. Bring peace to those who are anxious and fearful. Some stirred uh, to a fever pitch within their souls on this day, feeling like they can't shut their minds down for one moment, can't find a moment of true rest. Oh, Lord God, come to us in all of this need assembled here in this room, and speak to us. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you came humbling yourself, becoming what we are, the God-man, living the life that we could never live of perfect obedience and dying the death that we deserved for our sins on the cross, but rising miraculously from the tomb that we might have hope that there really is salvation from sin, and life that never ends. Come, Lord Jesus, come 
Holy Spirit. Come, Father. All of this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We, we, like the disciples, are saying, Lord, teach us to pray. That's the sermon uh, series title, but this is the specific title today for uh, verse 13. And I want you to keep it in its context. Remember, we're praying to our Heavenly Father, the King of the universe, the one who is sovereign over all things, the one who knows what you need before you even ask, and Jesus is teaching us to pray. Look at this picture for a moment. I wonder what do you see? What thoughts begin to fill your mind as you look down that path and the green and the beauty of it, the thick, dense forest growth, even the daylight that is just beyond those trees? Some of you probably have pleasant thoughts. Some of you may be saying, man, I wish I were there right now. I can understand that. But what, what are thoughts that fill your mind when you stare into a picture like this? What time of day is it? Does it look early morning to you or does it look late in the day? How far are we from civilization? And I say we, it's possible that you are alone. Are you on foot? Are you on a bike? A motorized vehicle of some kind? Do you have a backpack? Just carrying a water bottle? You see, depending on your circumstances, as you stand in that spot, beautiful as it may be, it may not feel beautiful at all, but rather could seem rather threatening. What if I said that the sun has already set beyond the horizon, that you are, in fact, alone, separated from family or friends that you began the day with? The temperature is falling rapidly. You're not sure where you are at this moment, and your water bottle is empty, and your phone shows no bars of service. And just ahead of you in the dense forest, a limb has just cracked in such a way that suggests you are not, in fact, alone. Well, that scenario makes that picture look very different, doesn't it? Circumstances have everything to do with the way you see and hear the environment that you're in. And what I just described, some of you may have been in that position before, and you say, yeah, that's not a fun position to be in. Would that be a time to pray? Some of you would say, absolutely, and I agree with you. What would you pray for in that moment? You say, duh, rescue. Sure, you might pray for someone to find you and lead you in the right direction. Do you go forward on this path or do you turn around and go backwards? Someone to provide you with strong protection from whatever just cracked the big limb in front of you. Someone to deliver you. Well, those are the kinds of things that Jesus recognizes confront us on the journey of life. That's part of the reason that we are compelled to pray the very words that he has given us here in in Matthew 6, verse 13. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. You see, as beautiful as this world is and as beautiful as the journey of life is, there are real dangers and real threats. There are real pressures that compel us to pray. And so when you answer that question, what would you pray for? I do want to boil it down to two different things. Direction, which way do I go? And deliverance, get me out of here. I think those are the two key words probably that we could use to to summarize uh, verse 13. 
Now, look with me again at the text, if you will, and notice in the context of the prayer, we're praying for the Father's direction. Now, there's a word that occurs here in verse 13 that we need to just ponder for a moment. Lead us not into temptation. And you know, there are actually two different uses of this word. Now, let me talk about the first one uh, that really doesn't apply here, but it's all through the New Testament in particular. And a, a temptation might actually just be a test that will prove the genuineness of something or someone. We were actually reading a portion of 1 Peter 1. When Matt was reading, it referred to the testing of your faith. That's the idea right here. So it's not specifically a temptation to sin. And in Equip class, we're actually going to dig a little deeper for a few minutes into James 1 and, and look at the testing of our faith and even how that prompts us to pray. But the second use of this same term, in the scriptures is what's in front of us, and that is actually an enticement to sin that results in a fall. An enticement to sin that will actually harm you as an individual or put you in a place that you don't want to be. It's interesting that in James 1, the same term is used in both ways. Because in James 1, when you get to verse 13, James, who's the earthly brother of Jesus, born into the same family after Christ was born, he actually says, don't, don't ever say to yourself when you're being tempted, I'm tempted of God or by God. Because he makes it very clear, God cannot be tempted himself and he does not tempt us to sin. And then he goes on to explain the process of temptation. Well, here in Matthew's gospel, as he records the words of Christ, Jesus is teaching us to pray that we would not be led into a temptation that would result in a fall. You know, it's interesting that a word like this could be used in a good sense and a bad sense. I was pondering that this week and actually had occasion to pick up a chainsaw. And I thought, you know, this is a great illustration of how something can have a good use or a bad use. And in the hands of a skilled lumberjack, a, a, a chainsaw could be used to harvest timber, to help construct log cabins, even sculpt all kinds of beautiful pieces of art from wood. Or if some of you, like I, have even seen uh, a skillful ice sculptor use a chainsaw. But in the hands of a homicidal maniac, it's a weapon of terror and destruction, isn't it? Well, a temptation or a test in the hands of God actually is a powerful tool that he uses to produce something beautiful or to prove the beauty of what's already in your heart, built into your character. In the hands of our adversary, it can become a tool of destruction. And that's what compels us to pray, lead us not into temptation. That is, Lord, don't carry us into that place where there might be some kind of catastrophic fall. Jesus was very aware of this as he entered the Garden of Gethsemane to pray, already agonizing in spirit over what was, what was coming toward him, the wrath of God when he would be made sin, who never knew any sin in his soul. Holiness was his very nature, and, and he was about to be made sin for us. And he begins to pray and pour out his soul, and he invites three disciples to come near and even says to them, will you pray with me? And he warns them, watch 
and pray that you may not enter into temptation. You see, there was a moment that was approaching those disciples when they would be tempted to deny knowledge of him, to forsake him as their master and Lord and run the opposite direction. And we all know how that story unfolds where Peter just hours before had bragged a little and boasted a lot, hadn't he? Lord, even though all these other disciples will... will turn and and flee from you. I will never flee from you. And Jesus is there saying, you better watch and pray because temptation is coming. He says, the spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. You have the right heart, you have the right desires, but you don't have the strength to pull this out. How, How would you get the strength? Through prayer. Jesus speaks this at a critical moment and I'm so thankful for the gospel account that doesn't you know, make those three disciples in particular to be, out, to, to be heroes that they really weren't. Because Jesus comes to them a couple of times, if you read that account, and he finds them sleeping. Have you ever had a moment where you, were, you, you had the right heart motive and, and the right desire, even made a plan? I'm gonna pray, I'm gonna seek the Lord, I'm gonna block out this time, and then you begin praying, and before you know it, you know, you've nodded off. Spirit is willing, but your flesh is weak. Well, these disciples learned a powerful lesson about praying for direction. Think of Psalm 5, verse 8. This would be the the positive aspect of, I think, the kind of prayer that the Lord is putting before us. He states it negatively. Don't lead us into temptation. But, you know, there are other passages of Scripture. And let me run through three Psalms very quickly Psalm 5, verse 8, lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness because of my enemies. Make your way straight before me. Or Psalm 23, verses 2 and 3, and many of you know that psalm, have memorized it or committed portions of it that tell us our good shepherd makes us to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Or Psalm 25, verses 4 and 5. Make me to know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me. For you are the God of my salvation, and for you I wait all the day long. That's the positive aspect of praying in this pattern that Jesus is giving us. Lord, don't lead me in a path that would lead to my overthrow or my downfall, but rather lead me in a path of righteousness. So we pray to the Father for direction. Now go back to the text in Matthew 6 and notice the next phrase. These these really are just reinforcing the same idea. They're not two different things that we are praying here. It's typical of the Hebrew parallelism uh, where often they would stack thoughts one on another just to help fill it out. And and we even do that in our own uh, communication one with another. But So we're praying for the Father's direction. We're also praying for the Father's deliverance. Deliver us. Rescue us. And the implication is that there is a severe danger that is on the horizon. Look again down that pathway. Let your imagination just kind of run loose for a little bit and think about all the scary things that could be down the path. My dad took five of my friends and I on a 70-mile week-long backpacking trip on the Appalachian Trail when I was 16. It's one of the great adventures of my life. And we, uh, I, I could tell you stories easily half the day. 
But there was one particular night where we had, uh, we, we actually didn't set up tents that night because on the Appalachian Trail, the whole, you know, 2,000 miles plus from Georgia to Maine, um, they have built shelters. They're primitive shelters, three-sided shelters, most of them, and then a little platform, and you roll out, you know, your bedding, and you sleep on the pat- platform. And we had a shelter all to ourselves one night. Finished supper, had sat around a fire for a little while, and uh, it was bedtime. And, you know, it gets really dark uh, out east in the Smoky Mountains. The canopy of trees, I mean, it's just dense, and you often cannot see starlight through, through the trees in the summertime. And we were just settling down, and uh, the conversation was starting to die off as, you know, one by one we were drifting off to sleep. And, and just on the hill above us, there was an enormous crack, not unlike what I described earlier, that sounded like a large tree limb had been broken off. Now, to add a little bit of tension to this, in the Smoky Mountains, the black bear population is healthy, and when you're camping in a spot like that, you run your food up into trees so the bears or raccoons or skunks can't get it. The crack came from where we had run all of our food and our backpacks up into the tree. And suddenly, everybody was wide awake, but nobody was saying anything. And my dad said, one of you brave Boy Scouts want to run up there and see what that was? (laughs) Not one of us volunteered. And then he said, waited a little bit and said again, well, somebody should go up and look. And so one of my buddies and I volunteered, and we jumped out of our sleeping bags, grabbed flashlights, and ran up to the crest of the hill, and 30 yards beyond, we could see that our packs and food bags were still hanging in the tree. That's all we needed to see. We turned and ran back, dove in our sleeping bags, and said, didn't see anything, don't know what it was, but our gear is safe. Like, we've done our duty. We listened, didn't hear anything for a little bit, started to relax, then, you know, cracking jokes and things like that. An even bigger crash. Silence again. Something is out there. And my imagination and the imagination of my friends just started to run wild. And, you know, somebody suggested maybe it was a deer. I'm like, no way. Deer don't make that noise. Maybe it's a bear. Yeah, that's an option. Maybe it's Sasquatch. That's an option nobody wants to consider, right? So my dad says, who's next? Nobody volunteered, and, you know, he kind of ribs us, gives us a hard time about it. He's like, well, I guess I'll go check on that. So I watched my dad go out up to the top of the hill, and then he had the bravery to go beyond. And I could still see the light of his flashlight in the top of the trees, and I can see it's moving, and all of a sudden he lets out this blood-curdling cry, (laughs) extinguishes his flashlight, and it's silent. And I think, I have lost my earthly father. (laughs) And whatever got him is now going to come get the rest of us. For what seemed like a night, we waited. And then he shows up three feet in front of us in the pitch black. And again, gives us a hard time because we didn't come rescue him. And he, (laughs) he had walked back in the dark. And so, you know, startled us with that initial, you know, word of like, you know, here I am kind of thing. And, you know, we were all relieved and a few choice comments that I would not share in a public forum. Uh, Great memories, but for a few moments, it was terror. 
I'm thankful there wasn't something that really was a threat to us. To this day, we have no idea what it was. Equipment survived the night. Food was, was left intact. We didn't hear any more you know, sounds that night. But you know, spiritually speaking, there are real threats and dangers. The greatest one is our adversary, and that's exactly what the Lord is teaching us to pray. Now, this phrase, depending on what English version you have, may actually be generic, or it may be more specific. From Some of your versions say, and, and the ESV uh, makes, it, makes a choice here, deliver us from evil, but some of your English versions may actually go a little further, more specifically, and say, deliver us from the evil one. So which is it? Well, there's actually good reason to go both directions. This term is used in multiple places in the New Testament to describe everything from wicked and evil people to persecution as an evil to evil deeds that other people would perpetrate or commit against us, deadly peril, which is a kind of evil, or in 2 Peter 2, 9, trials themselves can be viewed as evil. But then if you look in Matthew's gospel, the same term appears later in the book, actually a couple of times in Matthew's gospel, uh, but, but Matthew 13, 19 is, is one of those where the Lord himself refers to the evil one who snatches away the, the seed of his truth. The apostle John in his first letter, that little letter that occurs at the end of the New Testament uses this very term, and there's no doubt he's referring to the evil one. I'm actually inclined to think that our adversary, the devil, is in view. And I want you to think for a moment the weapons that he wields and how he really is a threat against you and me at every moment is always looking for an opportunity because Peter himself, who suffered that catastrophic fall the night that Christ was betrayed, Peter and all the others denied their relationship with Jesus and fled into the darkness of night. But Jesus in his grace restored Peter, didn't he? And that's a beautiful scene. Read it sometime at the end of, at the end of John's gospel, chapter 21. Peter will later write, you be sober and alert because your adversary, the devil, like a roaring lion, is prowling about looking for someone to devour. The devil is not a myth. He's not the personification of just bad, you know, mojo in the world. He is a living creature created initially by God in glory, but in rebellion, he fell catastrophically. And there, aside from the gracious restraint of God, there would be nothing to hold him back from destroying every one of us in this room. He hates God, and he hates you because you are created in the image of God. And when he looks at you, you remind him of the God he despises. What kind of deliverance are we praying for? Well, if you begin to survey the New Testament, you will find that not only is this creature powerful, but let me remind you, he's not all-powerful or omnipotent, as we say, and he is present in this world, but he's not omnipresent. He can't be everywhere on planet Earth at the same time, and though he is brilliant, he is not omniscient. He doesn't know everything. What are his weapons? Well, the first one that you see on the screen there. He accuses falsely so sometimes. Sometimes he just brings the real stuff into the court of heavens like, hey, God, have you seen what so-and-so did? He's a liar, John 8, tells us. He plants the seeds of suspicion and doubt 
John 8.44 also refers to him as a slanderer. He's a blasphemer. He sows discord and division between individuals. He'd love to sow that kind of division between you and your God. He's a murderer from the beginning, Jesus says. And sometimes he plants the seeds of anger that will take root and mature in actual acts of homicide or the despair that leads to suicide. Who's behind that? This evil one. He's a deceiver, according to 2 Corinthians 4, verse 4, and Revelation 12, 9. He blinds the spiritual eyes of our hearts. He works through false signs and wonders. John 10, 10 says that he is a destroyer. And Galatians 4, 8 reminds us that he enslaves people like us through sin. And James 1, verses 13, 14, and 15 tell us that he lures us through our own desires. He's a master fisherman, if you will, because he knows the appetites of your heart. He knows the desires of your flesh, and he's an expert at throwing a line in the water and reeling it by you when you're hungry and unsuspecting, and you, like a fish on, on the bank, look at that and say, that looks good. And when he sets the hook, as James 1 says, it brings death. It's absolutely true what Martin Luther wrote in that famous hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. When he describes the adversary that he himself, if you've ever read his biography, he actually has many things to say about his own engagement with the, the, the devil. But in that great hymn, he wrote, his craft and power are great and he is armed with cruel hate. On earth is not his equal. But praise God, there is one in heaven who is not just his equal, but infinitely greater. And the Lord encourages us with the truth that greater is he that's in you, the Spirit of God, than the one who's in the world. What kind of power does God wield? Well, what kind of protection are we praying for? What kind of protection does the Father give? Well, I want you to see that the, there are some components of this deliverance that, that actually are happening right now, whether you or I pray. Now, our prayer is important. We're gonna come back to that in a second, but I just want your hearts to rejoice in a few scriptures that the Lord gives us that show us there is an ongoing protection of Christ for his people. Look at 1 John 5, verse 18. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God, and that actually has reference to Jesus. He who was born of God, and, and what a miracle that was. Jesus Christ conceived of the Holy Spirit, as Luke 1.35 tells us, and then resurrected from the dead, as the Gospels and places like Colossians 1.18 tells us. He who was born of God protects him. Who's the him? The believer. And the evil one does not touch him. You say, wait, wait a second. Are we forgetting the story of Job? Are we forgetting all the other stories in Scripture where the, the faithful servants of God felt the opposition and attack of the evil one? No, we're not forgetting that. You need to think eternally. This adversary may afflict you and me for a season, but he can't touch us eternally. Sometimes God gives him permission to bring great difficulty into our lives. He did for Job. Job lost everything, lost his, lost his children, lost his health, lost his friends, lost his business. But in the end, God not only restored all of that and multiplied it many times over, you know where Job is at this very minute? 
in the presence of God. Satan had nothing on him. 2 Thessalonians 3, verse 3 tells us the Lord is faithful. He will establish you. That means to fix firmly. He will guard you. That is, keep you in safety against the evil one. That is the active protection of Christ that is ongoing for believers right now. Now, friend, if you are here and you are not in a personal relationship with God Almighty, these promises are are not guaranteed for you. You say, well, that's scary. Yes, it is. You telling me that God's children enjoy special protections and, and favor that I don't? Yeah, that, that's what God himself is saying. And don't make the mistake of thinking that just because you haven't experienced some kind of supernatural attack at this particular point that you're immune. You're exposed and vulnerable in ways that you may not, never have really considered. And it's only God's kindness that he hasn't just removed all protections from you at this point. There's also the active prayers of Christ, and I love this. John 17, 15 is a very specific example of Jesus praying for his followers. In this high priestly prayer, as it is called, Jesus says, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, and he's praying to his Father and our Father, and and so he's saying, Father, I'm not asking you to take them out of the world, but that you keep them, that is, you keep them in safety, specifically, from the evil one. Well, wait a second. Didn't Peter blow it big time? Yes, but he didn't ultimately self-destruct, did he? Or Luke 22, 31 through 32. You know, Jesus warned Peter. Simon is one of the names that Peter went by. And, And Jesus, to get his attention, actually repeats his name twice. Simon. Simon, behold, that is, listen to this. Satan demanded to have you. Can you imagine Satan demanding anything of God? I mean, what kind of arrogance is that? That just shows you a little bit more about his character and nature. Demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. You sifted flour lately? Pour it in that container, you begin to turn the wheel, and and even in that little baking Uh, tool, there's a vivid picture of how a person dropped into uh, a spiritual sifter would be reduced to fine particles. He's desired or demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. And that's exactly what happened. What power there is that Jesus says, I've prayed for you. You say, but Peter actually betrayed Jesus, or denied Jesus. Judas betrayed him. He actually denied him. Yes, he did, but temporarily. That was not the end of his faith. He mourned his sinful choice in that hour, and Jesus restored him sweetly and powerfully. And just a few weeks after this catastrophic moment, where's Peter? Well, he's in the temple precinct, preaching one of the greatest sermons that's ever been preached in the history of humanity. We call it Pentecost. Thousands were converted. That's what happens to an individual who humbles himself under the hand of God, submits his will, his life, his everything to this great Lord, is filled with the Holy Spirit, and then just begins to open his mouth in obedience and faith. 
This is the same Peter who, as I quoted earlier, warns fellow believers, be sober-minded, be watchful, your adversary the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Then he goes on, as it's recorded in verse 9 of 1 Peter 5, to say, resist him firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. You're not alone in your suffering. You're not alone in your testing. But you and I have a responsibility to resist this adversary by faith. But here's the really great and powerful, powerful word, Hebrews 7.25. I, I did not put this on the screen, and I apologize for that because, honestly, this is one of the great verses and texts in the New Testament. If you want to turn over there with me for a minute, you, you should look at this. But the writer of Hebrews has been describing the superiority of Christ's priesthood. He's not only the superior sacrifice that was made on the cross at Calvary for the forgiveness and removal of our sins, but he remains to this moment the perfect priest, the great high priest of our salvation. And among other activities, as he leads the worship in heaven, among other things that he is doing because of his indestructible life, the writer of Hebrews says in verse 25, consequently, that is because Jesus holds this priesthood permanently, eternally. Look at this. He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Some of you feel at this moment you have been brought to the uttermost limits of your strength. You have a high priest who always prays for you. You've been brought to the uttermost limits of your understanding, your resources, your health, your mental capacity, your parenting. Uh, there, are, there are all kinds of boundaries that we are pressed to, and sometimes we reach those boundaries and say, I can't go one step farther. I can't bear any more weight. I can't remain in the state as I am. You have a Savior and priest who's always praying for you. And if his prayers were effective in the ultimate rescue and deliverance of Peter, they will be effective in the ultimate deliverance and rescue of your dear soul. You are no less precious to Jesus than Peter in that hour so long ago. He ever lives to pray for you. I've long benefited. Uh, it was years ago that I read through the memoirs and remains, as it's titled, of a, a young pastor who lived in the 1800s. He died at the age of 29. He was a pastor in the Free Church of Scotland, and as you see on the screen, his name Robert Murray McShane. He would be worth investigating a little bit. Google him sometime, and you'll find quotes and portions. If you can get the entire book that was written by one of his dear, or compiled by one of his dear friends, um, it, it's powerful. I tell him, Chris and I have started I was looking for this particular quote last night, but I ended up just reading for a little while, and it was so deeply moving. Just a tender-hearted pastor wanted nothing more than to just walk in obedience and fellowship with the Lord. And he has a, a particular section that his friend, um, Andrew uh, Bonner, um, included in the biography called Personal Reformation, and it's actually a series of things where he says, I should consider. All of them have to do with our Lord. But the particular quotation that I want you to know and just ponder, McShane wrote, I ought to study Christ 
as an intercessor. He prayed most for Peter, who was to be most tempted. I'm on his breastplate. And that's a reference to the breastplate that the high priest of the Old Testament wore. You remember how that was crafted? And it had 12 stones representing the 12 tribes of Israel, didn't it? And, and each was unique. Go, go back and read it sometime. That's why it's important to read through books like Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, as hard-going as some of that can be. There are those beautiful, beautiful truths that are actually telling you about your great high priest who is yet to come. And the high priest in the Old Testament would not only wear these beautiful garments as he represented the people in the Holy of Holies once a year, but the breastplate was symbolic of how he was, he was carrying his people over his heart and carrying them into the very presence of God. So when McShane makes just a little brief, almost side note here, oh, it's rich with meaning, I am on his breastplate. Can you picture yourself there? Dear friend, like a precious, precious jewel over the very heart of your Savior and your priest. And then he says, if I could hear Christ praying for me in the next room, I would not fear a million of enemies, yet the distance makes no difference. He is praying for me. Do you know that? And do you believe that? We need a different set of ears to hear that praying, don't we? That's why we sang earlier, Jesus, to you, we turn our eyes. Jesus, you're our glory and our prize. Nobody ever loved you like Jesus loves you. Praise God for the, you know, maybe you had a godly mother or grandmother who prayed for you. Even their prayers don't come close to the prayers of this priest and Savior. He's praying for me. Well, all of that exists around and underneath, above and beyond our prayers. So the active protection of Christ, we read through a few promises, the active prayers of Christ, but the active response to your prayers. That's why it's important that you and I pray. Jesus is teaching us. Pray. And part of that is, Lord, Father, don't lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Do you feel like you are being pressed beyond your limits? I know some of you do, many of you do. Some of you feel like God gave permission for you to be sifted like wheat. It may be that you, just like Peter, are being tested severely. And you know what? You may even falter momentarily as Jesus did, but you have a great Savior and King who died to rescue you from your sin, who rose again to signal that you really are secure for eternity in his life and every day. In the eternal realm, he prays for you. Lord, teach us to pray. But isn't it wonderful that even as we learn to pray, and prayer really is a lifelong learning process, we it, feebly, weakly, falteringly, we just add our prayers to the perfect prayers of this priest. And it's the joy of his heart. He's calling you to join him in praying daily. And sometimes you say, I, I'm not just praying daily, I'm praying hourly. That's a good thing. That is a gift of God. These are precious promises. Would you bow your heads with me, please? God's not waiting for you to learn to pray perfectly before he listens and responds. 
He's asking you by faith to follow his lead, to listen to his pattern, uh, the instruction that he gives in this pattern of prayer, to rest in the fact that you have a high priest who prays continually for you, and Jesus prays perfectly, but he is calling you to pray. Some of you pray for a meal occasionally. Some of you throw up prayers of desperation in a moment where you're pressed beyond your understanding or your resources, and that's good, but that's just a start. Will you, will you consecrate yourself today saying, oh Lord God, first of all, thank you for your protection and for your prayers, but I want to join you. I, I want my prayer life to deepen and grow. I'm gonna caution you, if you pray that, God will answer that, but probably not by inviting you into a, a rose bed. He's probably gonna add some weight to your heart, to your mind. We'll talk about this more in equip class, but he only does that because he loves you and he actually agrees with you that you need to pray more than you do. Are you willing to let him lead you? Not into temptation, but to lead you in a path of righteousness for his namesake? Will you tell him right now? And even if you say, I'm, I'm afraid to ask him, well, just tell him you're afraid. But just take the next step with him. Lord, I'm afraid, but I fear more not going with you. I have a greater fear of not learning to pray as I ought to pray. I have a greater fear of missing out on the great blessing that you prepared for me. Just talk to him for a moment. Kind Heavenly Father, thank you for all that Jesus is. Thank you for this great high priest. Would you secure our hearts in him, grow our faith, and grow our prayer lives? And oh, how I pray that according to your promises that you would place powerful protection around each individual here. Some are strained to the max and, and feel like their faith might fail if you don't come and rescue. Be true to your word, Lord God. Deliver them from evil. Protect our church as we go forward in faith, serving you here in this community, seeking to love others with the love that you have shown to us, seeking to share the good news of a Christ who came and took upon himself our very nature, died in our place, rose again. Oh, Lord God, strengthen us to be bold in sharing that good news and cause others to hear it and believe. Please, Lord God, don't, don't lead us into a place where our faith would be tested and, and brought to failure, but lead us in paths of righteousness for your name's sake. These things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.